It was at night. The gunshots started. People were screaming. Bullets are being all over. The gunshots are all, all over. We can see the enemies. And I took direction to Congo with uh, other people who were running for their lives, the safety. And he put fire my house. We go to monastery. And he was a refugee at monastery. After six months, again, these people coming to monastery, again, do attack. We know about uh, good life, bad life, problem, poor, rich, everything. So we are experienced about life. For me here, it's, it's like... It's like heaven for me because I, I'm good. We we I I go to school, we I work, I get money. It's not much, but it's much for me. It's enough because we have freedom. Everyone is free here. It's not like my country. Those were the voices of Immaculate Dusabe, Christoph Nibizi, and Pascal Akimana. Immaculate, Christoph, and Pascal all fled violence in their African homelands. Christophe and his daughter Immaculate left their home in the Congo while Pascal fled from Burundi. We heard many stories from refugees of escaping violence, but perhaps none more dramatic than the stories from Pascal, Christophe, and Immaculate. They also offer insights into life here and are grateful for many of the simple things that we take for granted. Hi, I'm John Vosey, executive producer of Words in Transit. Words in Transit is a project of New England Public Radio and is being offered in conjunction with the release of a book of the same name, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. With Words in Transit, we wanted to bring the national conversation on immigration home to our community here in western Massachusetts and to focus on stories of individuals that have settled in the United States from around the world. We collected interviews from individuals that have traveled here from Asia, the Middle East, Europe, Latin America, and Africa. Here's Tema Silk, the managing director of Words in Transit, to tell us more about Christophe, Immaculate, and Pascal. Christophe Nibizi and his family are Tutsis who lived in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Christophe ran a successful farm there, but tensions between the Hutus and the Tutsis became deadly. Hutus stormed Christophe's village, set his farm on fire, and the family stood and watched it burn to the ground. Terrified, Christophe, his wife, their daughter Immaculate, and her five siblings ran for their lives. The Rwandan refugee camp where they eventually took shelter became their temporary home for a long 18 years filled with hardship. Finally obtaining visas, they arrived in Springfield, Massachusetts in the dead of winter, completely unprepared for the snow and cold. But as Immaculate describes, her family had seen and experienced so much by then, it knew how to land on its feet. Here's Christophe Nibizi and his daughter, Immaculate Dusabe. My teacher uh, sometimes say, oh, United States is a very good country, no problem. I, I didn't think if uh, United States is a, it's a cold country. Someone who told me in my country uh, about snow, and she told me uh, if you touch snow, your finger will be cut. And when I hear that, I said no one can walk out in the snow. So when we came here, I saw we came here in November 2012. It was so cold. We didn't have any any coats, any shoes, boots, anything, everything. Oh my God! Because we we didn't know about the, this country. My country before he was very good. In my country, there were a fighting war. 
between the people. It was like a conflict between people, was it, which was uh, happening in my country after the Rwanda was fighting because there was genocide which happened in Rwanda. After the genocide, the uh, people, killers, come on my country and start fighting in my country. But that happened to the to one one trouble. They came from Rwanda to Congo to my country. There were refugees from Rwanda, outside of Rwanda. Some were in Burundi, others were in Uganda, others were in Congo. They left uh, Rwanda and they came to my country and started fighting again because there are Tutsi in Rwanda and Tutsi in my country, so we are Tutsi. They come from Rwanda and fighting in Congo to kill the Tutsi who were in, in, in Congo. They started uh, burning houses, everything, killing cows and the yeah. people. And they put fire my house. We go to monastery. And we was a refugee at monastery. After um, six months, again, these people coming to monastery, again, do attack. Red Cross and one bishop from Goma, Red Cross and UNHCR, coming to take uh, the people and go to Rwanda. We didn't have a house, we didn't have crops, we didn't have anything, even education. I grew up mm. in, my, in the refugee. I, didn't know, I don't know my country. <laughs> Me and my wife, we make $40 only. $40. Me, I, I work mm-hmm. a month. I work for $20. 20 My wife worked for $20. Now, I work for $8. I, I, one hour, $8. I make money. So our life was so bad. Was was good before. And after that, we got a problem, which happening now. After we, we, we got a refugee camp and leave refugee to come here, we know about uh, good life, bad life, problem, poor, rich, everything. So we are experienced about life. For me here, it's, it's like, it's like heaven for me because I, I'm good, we, we, I, I go to school, we, I work, I get money, it's not much, but it's much for me. It's enough because we have freedom. Everyone is free here. It's not like my country. I can say that everyone has to thank God because God gives you chance for, for anyone here in this country. But in Africa, the problem is too much. That was Christophe Nibizi and his daughter Imakule Dusabe. Pascal Akimana was 11 years old when rebels entered his village in Burundi and began attacking people with machetes. He and his father and sisters immediately fled, but at the Congolese border, they were separated. Pascal now was responsible for his three younger sisters. Narrowly escaping brutality and death time and time again in the ensuing years, Pascal eventually moved to South Africa, where he began his work as a humanitarian. Now living in Holyoke, Massachusetts, he recently earned his master's degree in peacebuilding and conflict transformation. He's the president of the Massachusetts-based diaspora organization Engaging for Action in Burundi, and he's also executive director of the nonprofit Umoja Now, which is committed to engaging Burundi men and boys to promote gender equality and decrease violence against Burundi women and girls. Here's Pascal. 
I come from a country called Burundi where the country was ravaged by civil war. So I became a refugee at the early age and I went to neighboring country, the Democratic Republic of Congo. I look after my sister when I was 11 and my other sister was nine, another one was seven. So 93, they killed the first president that was elected democratically that sparked the violence. It was at night, the gunshots started. I heard gunshots all over in the village. People were screaming. And suddenly the neighbors were coming to a house, waking people, saying we are being killed. So and so is being hacked by machete. And then soldiers, military are there. Uh, we started running when I say we, the family. Bullets are being all over, and the gunshots are all, all over. We can see the enemies, and it wasn't like dark. It was like 5 in the morning, and I took direction to Congo with uh, other people who were running for their lives, of the safety. When we reached the border of the Congo, the Congolese military were not so kind uh, to us. They brutalized refugees. They started raping women, and they stole from what the refugees had, what we we had, I witnessed those things. And there were some aid worker working for UNHCR and Red Cross on Congo who heard that there were refugees from Burundi in who were stuck in the bush. And then when they received us and they took those women who were raped to the, to the clinic, there was a clinic run by the nuns. They took the refugees who had, who had been brutally attacked by the Congolese military into that clinic and myself and my two sisters um, with other crowd we were put in the refugee camp there was no bed there was nothing nothing at all soon the cholera attack because where you find so many people and no bathrooms and there's no food people are hungry and it took time and days if not weeks for us to get aid like in terms of food and medical attention the local people who had received us, they were already getting burdened because refugees were going to their field stealing food from the crops that they had planted and they started attacking refugees and killing them. I saw all those things. And that refugee camp was in Congo was very hard. And I said, I don't want to die here. I don't want to be killed by Congolese or even just be killed because... I am hungry, I want food, I came to a country of safety, but I'm, I'm going to lose my life here. I told my two sisters we should rather go back home and get killed. We don't even know where our dad is. And, and they were very young and I took them, came to Burundi, it was not safe. We walked like uh, four to five hours because that refugee camp was not too far from the border. And when we went there, we find my dad was there and his wife. They had run different direction and they came back as well. Burundi wasn't safe. I stayed with my sister in the hard condition. Uh, my mom had gone to a different refugee camp, which was very far. There was no communication. So at my house, I had to work hard. I put myself in school because my dad was really a responsible man. So I had to work hard to care for my siblings and I put myself in school. I went to boarding school. There was a program at that time that was receiving children who were orphans or who didn't have any means to put themselves or their parents to put them in schools. 
and then they transferred me to boarding school it's in the coffee plantation and because it was in the coffee plantation in the bush that's where the fighting between the rebels and the military were happening i saw people being killed some of our professors were shot at we were in the cafeteria one day eating and the bullets were flying the woman who was at the secretary of the school she was burnt alive in the car the military will bomb the rebels who were assumed to be in the coffee plantation and that coffee plantation was at school and military will accuse students of conspiring with the rebels to attack the military and some rebels when they don't see you working with them because they will come at school spying they will think that you are conspiring with the government military and one night the rebels came they wanted to recruit new uh, rebels so they opened the uh, the dormitory and then they were bullets all over they were the government had deployed some a military camp so they could guard the students when the rebels came they fought with those soldiers the soldiers they ran and then the rebels took students and the headmaster and some of the teachers into the bush i was lucky i fled because i was little and it was in the dark i hid in the bush i ran with other students we find ourselves to muinga and then muinga is another province that is close to tanzania that's how i left burundi this time in the refugee camp in tanzania life wasn't easy as you might imagine life in the refugee camp there's no electricity no water nothing i got lucky i went to nairobi through the aid worker there was a canadian who worked for a humanitarian organization who admired me somehow and then she thought that i could go to school because i was very young and i went to nairobi When I went to Nairobi I went to school there and I couldn't go back home because there was active civil war and people were being killed there my family were not home I was hearing news once in a while that they were in Congo others they were in Tanzania so I couldn't stay in Nairobi I end up going from Kenya Nairobi Kenya going to South Africa I walked I took bus I didn't have passport and It's a long story but I when I reached in South Africa I lived in South Africa for six years that's where I started volunteering working with street kids and then um, I end up going to Geneva working with World Health Organization and United Nations High Commission for Refugees and then I came back to South Africa I took up another job for American international organization called the International Rescue Committee in Ivory Coast I started applying for schools America was the first country that issued me a visa to come here and I came to learn because I'm the first in my family that even have finished high school, have finished college. I could see how in the family we were limited because of the the education level we had, but at the same time I could see in Burundi that we have killed each other because uh, it, honestly illiteracy In Burundi we have Tutsis and Hutus and Twa it's like in Rwanda and these people they lived together and one day they were told that they were different and the politician exploited the ignorance of people illiteracy of people and innocent civilians took up arms they killed each other so that illiteracy that ignorance that's the one I was really trying to avoid and see if i could study hopefully i will go back to impact my community my village and i'm glad i came to america I have really really learned a lot many people in america felt to be thankful 
for just the blessing they have. I grew up running miles to go to fetch water, not even clean water. In my village in Gatumba, there's a, a Rusizi River. There are hippos in, that, in those rivers. There are crocodiles in the river. I remember I used to go to fetch water with other kids. Some of my friends were attacked by crocodiles, and those were dirty water. After we walked a mile from that river, we would have to go to fetch firewood so that we can prepare a meal and we can boil water because we were told to, to drink water that was boiled. Now, to see in America people who have water, they even wash cars with water, they wash dogs with water, anything. Is, sometimes I said, God, this is injustice. How, how do kids here just wait on the door for the school bus to come to take them to school? They go with the bus. I had to walk without shoes, with my pants, the holes, my butt was all outside, and I would go to school hungry, leave the school, go home, I find there's no meal, and I still walk miles. But the kids who have, you know, the school bus, who have food at school, who have computers, they still say they are bored. They still say they don't like being alive. Or I hear stories from some kids here, and then I say, wow, life can be really sometimes unfair. I have started a program, exchange program, where I was in the past I was taking American students to go to my village. We built some homes for, for the poor elderly people. They had never gone outside this country. And then when they saw how other young people like them, they were working hard. In my country, you, you work hard an entire day, just you get paid 50 cents, and you still appreciate life. The advice I have for people in general is never give up. There's a time I felt like the world has fallen on me. There's time I questioned whether God existed. There's time where I, I asked, what have I done to deserve this? But human beings are resilient people. As soon as I realized that I could hang on another day, I changed my mindset and the attitudes. I challenged myself not to sit down leaking my own wounds. I stood up and then I said, no, I deserve better. I don't want to keep feeling sorry for myself. Things really changed. And the advice I said to my fellow immigrants who are here in America is to keep the same attitudes that we have in Africa. Whether we sleep hungry, we work hard, we still hope that today is going to be a better day. We smile, we laugh, we visit each other. We have a proverb called Ubuntu. It means I exist because you exist. I'm a person because you are a person. We are interconnected. I need you, you need me. That's the spirit I think I can even ask my fellow human beings who happen to be Americans to go beyond the individualistic culture, the uh, kind of the consumer culture that is mindset where I see kids wanting to have toys and material things because I didn't have things in my life, but I was happy in my village. I didn't even notice that we were poor. If we know each other, if we are a brother's keeper or sister's keeper, we will be doing great. We will know how one's is doing and how best we can support. That was Pascal Akimana. Before Pascal, we heard from Christophe Naibizi and Immaculate Dusabe. To see photographs of Pascal, Christophe, and Immaculate, and to hear all of the Words in Transit interviews, visit our website at nepr.net.
where you can also learn about upcoming Words in Transit events. You can also find information about all of NEPR's podcasts at nepr.net or on iTunes. Let us know what you think about Words in Transit. Review us on iTunes or send us an email at radio at nepr.net. To see additional photographs and to read transcripts of all of our interviews, see the Words in Transit book, available from the University of Massachusetts Press. Proceeds from the sale of the book benefit the Words in Transit Immigrant Scholarship Fund at Holyoke Community College. Next time on Words in Transit, political asylum. We came on a student visa, and then we applied for political asylum. And we have to sit down and revisit why we left Sudan, how we went to Yemen, and how we came from Yemen to here. And that was not an easy trip to revisit, especially for my husband. He was tortured. He was still traumatized with that. It took a lot of work to get the story out. My love for this country is unconditional because of what it stands for and what I found here. And I could just never take this for granted. The story of two women, one from Europe and one from the Middle East, that came here as political refugees. That's next time on Words in Transit. The managing director of Words in Transit is Temis Silk. The producer is Kathleen O'Keefe. And we had help on this podcast from Sara Redigieri. Also, special thanks to Alan Stavins, editor of the Words in Transit book, and Beth Reynolds for her beautiful photographic portraits of all of our interviewees. I'm John Vosey. Thank you for listening. Words in Transit is a production of New England Public Radio in collaboration with the Copeland Colloquium at Amherst College.